to the law and to the testimonies. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. The song we just sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther back in the 1500s, is probably being sung in a number of congregations across this country, and yet the vast majority of those singing them, if not all of those singing them, do not even know what Martin Luther was writing about when he described the enemy and the foe of the Church of Jesus Christ, whose rage, he said, he was able to endure. And that's what we want to deal with this morning. This morning, if the Lord will bless us in the next little while, I want to preach to you about the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? I want to continue in the present reality of prophecy. Well, now that gives it away right there to a certain extent. We are continuing to deal with the present reality of God's promises, or those promises He has given us in His Word that are receiving fulfillment in the present time. While we here are alive, we spent several months on the past realities of prophecy or those promises of God that have already been fulfilled completely. Now we're dealing with those that are fulfilled at the present time. And it'll be in a couple weeks when we'll take up the future reality of God's prophecies when we deal with those things that will be fulfilled in the future. But this morning we want to deal with the Antichrist the man of sin, the son of perdition, the enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Now, the Bible warns us about a coming enemy that would persecute the saints of God, that would oppose everything that's called God or that's worshipped as God, and he's known as the Antichrist. That's the common term given to designate this man of sin an enemy of the gospel, church, kingdom, and person of Jesus Christ. Daniel describes this individual as a little horn. He's referred to repeatedly as a little horn in Daniel chapter 7, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. The Apostle Paul describes him as the man of sin, the son of perdition, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. John describes him as Antichrist, 1 John chapter 2. And then in the book of the Revelation, John describes him, it, as a great whore, an adulterous woman, and as a beast, described in several different scenarios. Now, this morning, we're not going to deal with what John has to say in the book of the Revelation. I'm saving Revelation to deal with it at length in a few weeks from now. What we want to do today is take the rest of what Scripture teaches about this man of sin and Antichrist to use it to explain the book of Revelation when we get to it. Remember, Revelation is written in signs. Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ was given to John by signification, by through his angel. So Revelation is in signs. But the Apostle Paul didn't write in signs. The Apostle Paul spoke plainly. He said in 2 Corinthians 3.12, we use great plainness of speech. Daniel didn't use signs because Daniel wasn't a prophet to the nation of Israel. Daniel wrote a book that was sealed up until Jesus Christ opened that book in Matthew chapter 24. It's for you. The book of Daniel's for you. We'll go to Daniel. We'll go to Paul. And we'll go to John in 1 John 2 when he wrote 
that they might know certain things. And we'll see who this man of sin and son of perdition is so that when we get to the book of Revelation, the Lord willing, it will fall into place for us. This is a present reality of prophecy because this man of sin, this son of perdition, this antichrist must be revealed before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Now, I'll show you that so plainly. There's no other way around it. That's a warning that Paul made that this man of sin must be revealed before Jesus Christ returns. The speculations regarding the identity of this enemy are legion. Remember when Jesus Christ ran into a man possessed with devils and asked the name, the name that came back from the man was legion. We are many. Well, there are many speculations about who the Antichrist is. There are a dime a dozen today, and they have been for the last 150 years. The speculations for the last 150 years are many. Dozens and dozens of different speculations. Why some today have thought that it was Henry Kissinger. I remember the little numerical formula that you could apply to Henry Kissinger's full name, and you could arrive at the number of the so-called beast of 666. In 1940, John R. Rice wrote a book claiming that it was Mussolini. Well, now Mussolini's dead and gone, and he wasn't the Antichrist. M.R. Han, a popular Bible teacher, claims that it will be Judas who will be resurrected from the dead in a book he's written about the Antichrist. Some have claimed it was Hitler, Joseph Stalin, and others. Some claim it's the United Nations. It's not an individual personality, but it's the United Nations. Some claim it's the U.S. government, and the number of the beast is your social security number. They've come up with every kind of conceivable speculation as to who this man of sin is. But the Bible tells us. Jesus Christ said, if you'll read, you'll understand, and that's what we want to do this morning is read and understand. And the comments I made earlier this morning about you young men in the congregation being built upon a foundation that's sure and strong, it's the Word of God. Men today speculate, guess, they're in a fog, in a daze. Professors don't know what they're teaching. They just teach what they were taught. They don't know how to think, and they don't take a dogmatic position on anything because they don't have one to take. We can have one because it's in the Word of God. God said it. Let's be dogmatic about it. There are three positions that are applied to New Testament prophecy. We're going to deal more with these in the future, but I just want to give them to you right now. One position, and there are only three basic camps that people can fall into. One is called the preterist position. Don't let that word bother you. Let's call it past fulfillment of prophecy. It's called the preterist position. That position teaches that all prophecy is fulfilled and has been for 1915 years because that position teaches that everything written in the New Testament was fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem, including the resurrection of the dead and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense. And, oh, there's a great number of people who have maintained that position who have some very cogent arguments to prove their point. They don't prove it completely, but they've got some good arguments that sound good unless you're well-trained in the Word of God. But there's been, a, there's been a school of thought that all prophecies been fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem. The whole book of Revelation in describing Babylon and the destruction of Babylon is referring to Jerusalem. And yes, Jerusalem is referred to as Babylon 
under a spiritual guise. But that's one school, that the Antichrist has already been here. He was one of two people, and then they differ on this. He was either Julius Caesar or he was Nero, who put Paul to death there in 66 A.D. and who died in 68 A.D. See, they see, they see everything fulfilled by 70 A.D. at the destruction of Jerusalem. And so they looked for the Antichrist, the man of sin, in a Roman Caesar, and they picked Julius Caesar or Nero Caesar, two of which they felt fulfilled Bible prophecy. Another position or camp that Bible prophecy falls into is known as the futurist position. It's the one believed by 95% of the professing religious world today. It's only 200 years old. It's known as the futurist position, that is, all or most New Testament prophecy is still held out for the future. It has not been fulfilled, and it will not, it is not fulfilled now, and it's not being fulfilled. It is yet to be fulfilled in the future. That's why it's called the futurist position. The Antichrist is still some man to come in some future time. When they look at the book of Revelation, they see the first three chapters as being addressed to Christian churches. They take practical instruction from that, but from Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 to the rest, end of the book. It's all future and all to be fulfilled after the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all in the future. That's a second camp. The third is called the historical position. This is the position that prophecy is and has been in the process of being fulfilled since the time of Jesus Christ, who said it was the last time and who said certain things were going to be fulfilled in that generation. That's known as the historical position. It's been maintained since the time of the apostles that prophecy was in the act of being fulfilled. While those who believe in past fulfillment of prophecy looked at Nero, Caesar, in 66 A.D. as the Antichrist, the futurists look out to the end of the world at some Superman that's going to come and be the Antichrist. They don't know if he's going to be half spirit, half man, or what he's going to be. But he's going to be some Superman that comes at the end of this age. Why, Gene Dixon's reported he's already been born in 1961. 1961, Gene Dixon said he was born of the tribe of Dan, a Jew. We'll have more to say on where that idea came from in just a little while. The past looks to Nero. The future looks to some Superman out in the future. The historical position of Bible prophecy looks at the Roman papacy. And we're going to assume that right off the bat. We've spent some time in Daniel before this morning. But we're going to assume that the Antichrist is the Roman Catholic papacy as a starting point so that I can get this done in an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. And I'm going to prove it over and over to you as we progress. That's who Martin Luther was writing about in the, 15th, in the 16th century when he described the foe of the church whose rage they could endure because there were people that were turning into charred heaps of ashes at poles because of their belief in the true gospel of Jesus Christ as the Pope burned them at the stake. But now let's look at the Bible and see what the Bible has to say and see what the Bible teaches about the past fulfillment of prophecy, the present fulfillment or the historical fulfillment, or whether it's all out in the future. We have three places in the Bible outside of Revelation that deal with the man of sin, Daniel, 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 John 2. We want to start by going to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. 
Now, we have been in Daniel chapter 7 before, but we didn't spend a great deal of time there, and I told you on that occasion that we'd be coming back to take up some of the things that are here described more carefully. Daniel chapter 7. Remember, in the book of Daniel, we primarily have prophecies relating to Israel and the Jews. However, there are a couple prophecies that extend beyond the Jews to include this time or the time of the Gentiles. Daniel chapter 2 was one where Nebuchadnezzar saw the vision of the image. Remember, the legs of that image represented the Roman Empire, which do extend into the times of the Gentiles. And it was the legs of that empire that the kingdom of Jesus Christ would break into powder and it would be blown away as the chaff of the threshing floor. Daniel chapter 7 extends also into our times where we're given the most detailed description in the Bible of what was to occur with the Roman Empire. But let's review briefly how the chap Daniel chapter 7 begins. Remember in the first few verses here of Daniel chapter 7, in verse 2, Daniel sees the four winds of the heaven striving upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another, one from another. Remember the first was a lion. We've already seen that represent the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar and his followers. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, the second like to a bear, the Medo-Persian empire. As we've proven substantially from the book of Daniel, where he tells us that that is the second kingdom on previous occasions. Verse 6, Daniel beholds and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl and so forth. And that was the Grecian or Macedonian Empire under Alexander the Great. Then in verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now we've already seen from Daniel chapter 2 that the fourth beast was the Roman Empire because it was in the days of the Roman Empire that Jesus Christ did establish his kingdom. That's why we read over there in Mark chapter 3, I believe it is, or Luke chapter 3, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ was announced by John the Baptist in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, a Roman emperor. This fourth empire here in Daniel chapter 7, as almost every single historian believes and understands, to be the Roman Empire, because there were four empires, one following upon another, and the one that followed right upon the heels of the Grecian Empire was the Roman Empire. Verse 8, out of this Roman Empire, we saw in the last few words of verse 7 that ten horns grew. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Four kingdoms would exist in succession, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The fourth kingdom, Rome, would degenerate into ten kingdoms. We've already discussed that in the past, and we see that here in verse, verses 7 and 8. The Roman Empire would break up into ten smaller kingdoms. Remember, they were horns that grew out of the Roman Empire. They didn't grow out of a new beast. It's the same beast. It's Roman. 
the horns grew out of the Roman Empire, and they were ten lesser or minor kingdoms of the Roman Empire that would arise together upon the demise of the Roman Empire as the world knew it when it had universal dominion. Another kingdom, diverse from those ten, would arise after the ten and pluck up three of them. And that's where we want to take up. We want to see here in Daniel chapter 7 one of the most detailed descriptions of the 2,500 years ending today ever given. Daniel described the Roman Empire as it existed before the time of Jesus Christ and as it's continued in the ten horns and the little horn that grew up after the ten horns. There are ten characteristics given to us between verses 9 and 28 of this chapter, which is the end of the chapter, describing this little horn. Ten characteristics. And very quickly, we want to cover them and see their fulfillment in the papacy of Rome. Number one, the little horn would be Roman. The little horn grew out of the fourth beast. There's no question about it. It must be a Roman king or kingdom, depending on how you look at it. Here in Daniel chapter 7, as in the rest of Daniel, king and kingdom are used interchangeably. Where you have a kingdom, you obviously have a king. And where you have a king, you have a kingdom. The first thing about this little horn, or this Antichrist, as we're going to see, is that it's Roman. Now, it's amazing. It's amazing when you find men who want to deny that the papacy has anything to do with the Antichrist, how they'll make the little horn Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember Antiochus Epiphanes was the Greek northern king who came against Israel and destroyed Jerusalem to a certain extent and set up an abomination of desolation there in Jerusalem and took away the daily sacrifice for 2,300 days. Daniel 8 tells us about that. But men trying to deny what I'm teaching to you right now teach that that little horn spoken of there in verse 8 and spoken of throughout the rest of the chapter is Antiochus Epiphanes. Can you prove right off the bat that it cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes? Well, I just gave you the proof. It grew out of the fourth empire, not the third. It's a Roman king, not a Greek king. Antiochus was a Greek king. With that simple statement of Scripture, if you can read it, if you can understand that four is four and four is not three, you have just surpassed a number of those who spend their lives in seminaries and monasteries trying to interpret Scripture to fit their scheme of thinking. All you've got to do is read it. The little horn in Daniel 7 is a Roman king. Is, Ro is the papacy of Rome a Roman kingdom? You bet it is. Where is it centered? Where is its headquarters? In Rome. The same Rome that was the head of the empire of Rome. What is the name of that church to which the papacy claims to be the head and overseer and universal bishop? The Roman Catholic Church. Why, they've kept the name to identify themselves as just who they are. The Roman Catholic Church, the papacy at the pinnacle of it, is the little horn we have described here, and I'll continue to prove it as we progress through the chapter. First of all, we see that this little horn will be a king that will arise out of the Roman Empire. The second thing we need to notice is when it arises. It arises after the Roman Empire has been broken into ten little kingdoms. We can see that in verse 24. 
In verse 24, an angel is giving the interpretation to Daniel of this little horn. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Number two, the characteristic we want to look at is that the little horn arises after the Roman Empire is in ten kingdoms. When did the Roman Empire, when did the papacy, excuse me, arise? It arose between 476 A.D. and 610 A.D. after the Roman Empire had been broken into ten kingdoms. You can go to a reference library and pick yourself up any history of the Roman Empire that you wish, and you'll find the Roman Empire, after it was destroyed by northern tribes, broke into a commonwealth of ten kingdoms. All will prove me and bear me out on that point. After those ten kingdoms were established in a commonwealth, out of the, cent out of the center of power in the city of Rome rose the bishop of Rome, who in the next 100 years claimed universal authority over all the churches and then took to himself civil authority in about the year 610 A.D. But the point we're looking at, and not all those historical details, but the point we're looking at is the fact that the little horn would arise after the Roman Empire was in ten pieces. And what arose after the Roman Empire was in ten pieces? The papacy of Rome. The third characteristic. The little horn would overthrow three of those ten Roman kingdoms. Now, it's a fact that when that commonwealth existed of those ten kingdoms, the bishop of Rome had no authority but over the church that was in Rome. Churches were beginning to look to it as the center of power and authority, but it did not have that power as of yet. But it overthrew three successive three kingdoms in succession of those ten. It's a well-known fact of history. The kingdoms are known, the rulers are known, the dates are known, and the methods of how the Pope overthrew them are known. Remember, the Pope didn't have an army. He had to get, he had to get into agreement and confederacy with other kings to come and do his dirty work for him. And it's all well known that three kingdoms were overthrown before 610 A.D. out of the ten that made up the commonwealth of nations that followed the Roman Empire. The papacy of Rome did exactly what Daniel said here would occur after the time of those ten kings. The fourth characteristic, the little horn would be diverse from the ten Roman kingdoms. We can see that in verse 24 also. And another shall rise after them, and the papacy did rise after the ten kingdoms, and he shall be diverse from the first. That is, from those ten kingdoms that came first. He'll be diverse or different from them. Is the papacy of Rome different from the ten kings that made up the ten kingdoms of the fallen Roman Empire? You bet he is. Those ten kings that made up the commonwealth of nations were known for their civil authority and military power. The king that rose after them was known for his ecclesiastical authority or authority in the church and spiritual power as opposed to military and civil power. He was to be very different. Why, kings only rule here in this earth, don't they? Kings only claim to rule here in this world. The Pope himself wears a triple crown to denote the fact that he rules in heaven, earth, and hell. He was very diverse from the, from the kings that came before him. Perfect fulfillment in the Pope of Rome, who claims control over the souls 
of man who claims control, power, and authority over the eternal destiny of man. Spiritual power as opposed to civil and military power. What is the papacy diverse from the kings that came before? He certainly is and fulfills it to a T. Number five, the little horn would speak great things against the Most High. There's a number of verses in here that say that. Let's look at verse 25, describing this little horn. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. This little horn that would arise out of the Roman Empire after the ten kingdoms, pluck up three of those kingdoms and be diverse from the ten, would also speak great words of blasphemy against the Most High. Now, if I wanted to bore you this morning, I could quote to you statements that the popes have made and fill up the next two hours of time very easily. Statements that they've recorded of themselves, how that the pope claims to be God himself represented here on earth. Now, that's one way that they speak great words against the Most High. They claim to be God on earth. That when you pray and worship and do and submit to the Pope of Rome, you are praying, worshiping, and submitting to God Almighty. He's referred to as the Holy Father. And let me tell you, there's only one person in the Word of God that's ever described as the Holy Father, and that's found in John chapter 17, and that's the Most High God Himself. But He claims the title of Holy Father. Now, is that speaking great things against the Most High? And I could go on and multiply them from now until this evening. But we've got other things to cover. How else does He speak great things against the Most High? The Most High has said that His worship is to be prescribed in a certain way and that certain things are true about His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Pope of Rome has the audacity to set forth new doctrine, speaking things against the Most High. Jesus Christ, who is the Most High, said, Learn not the way of the heathen and pray in repetitions. What do the Catholics do? They kneel beside their beds and take their rosary and pray in repetitions in obedience to the Pope who has spoken great things against the Most High. Jesus Christ, who is the Most High, said, Call no man Father on earth. The Catholics call the Pope Father, and not only Father, but Holy Father, in direct contradiction to the words of the Most High. Does the papacy of Rome fit the bill? In point number five, it couldn't fit it any better. There's never been a person in the history of this world that could fit it better than the Pope of Rome. Number six, the little horn would have the eyes of man and a stout look. Look at verse 20. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, that's the little horn, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. His look was more stout than his fellows. He has the eyes of a man, verse 8 tells us. There in verse 8, we read about the little horn toward the end of that verse. Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, we've already covered the mouth, but this horn has eyes. Now, it's unusual for a horn to have eyes, isn't it? The reason that this horn has eyes is to tell you something that you ought to observe. He's going to see. He's going to have eyes. He's going to be a seer. My friends, this little horn that would arise would be an overseer. He would see things with his eyes. Is the Pope of Rome an overseer? He claims to be the overseer of the whole church of Jesus Christ. 
Well, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. But where are the eyes of the Pope claimed to be? Every place as well through the confessional of his church. Does, the, does anything escape the Pope of Rome as far as the sins of men? God Almighty said, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And there you will find the oversight of the universal bishop of the Roman Catholic Church through their confessional, seeing the good and the evil of all men. He'd be a seer, an overseer, and sure enough, the papacy of Rome fits it to a T. What other man has had that kind of oversight into the lives and souls of men and women? And for those of you who don't know much about the confessional, I can direct you to a book or two that will tell you a few things of what women have gone through in the last 2,000 years as they kneel before a so-called celibate priest and confess to him the darkest sins of their lives in the, in the confidence that those sins would be remitted by confessing them to the priest. He would be an overseer, and there's not been another person in the history of this world that fits the bill like the papacy of Rome. Number seven, the little horn would make war with the saints of the Most High. That's found in verse 25 and in other verses here in this chapter. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. There it is. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Come back to verse 21 and you'll see a similar statement made. Daniel writes, I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. He makes war with the saints. He prevails against the saints, and he wears the saints of the Most High out. Now, the Jews persecuted the Christians in the time of Paul. Yes, they did. The Jews did persecute the Christians while they stoned Stephen to death, and they persecuted the Apostle Paul. And pagan Rome persecuted the Christians. Nero used them as torches in his courtyard. Nero fed them to beasts in the Colosseum. But the persecution of the Jews and the persecution of pagan Rome was nothing compared to the persecution that the saints of the Most High endured under papal Rome or the papacy of Rome. The Jewish persecution only lasted a little while after 70 A.D. They weren't persecuting. They were persecuted. Pagan Rome only lasted a little while as that empire was divided, its capital removed to Constantinople, and the empire deteriorated. They didn't do anything compared to what the Pope of Rome did for 1,200 years, according to their own testimony. I can show you quotes of Catholic archbishops who've said they have persecuted those known as the Anabaptists for 1,200 years because this verse says they'll prevail, and they did. They drove, they drove the Christians and the saints of the Most High into the recesses of Europe. They had to hide in the valleys of the Swiss Alps and Alps of northern Italy to escape, to escape the war of the papacy of Rome through their inquisition and campaigns to exterminate those venomous serpents, as the Pope liked to refer to peace-abiding Anabaptists and Waldensians. And they wore them out. Now, to wear someone out requires a great deal of time, doesn't it? Come on, look, read, read it. You can understand what it means to wear somebody out. You know what it's like when your children wear your patience out. 
It's over a period of time. Well, you can read the Bible and understand it. This is describing a persecution that could only refer to the Church of Rome and the papacy through their campaigns to exterminate the saints of the Most High. They made war against them. They prevailed in the sense that it looked like they were gaining the ascendancy over the saints of the Most High, and they wore them out for 1,200 years. Again, fulfillment in the papacy of Rome. Number eight, the little horn would think to change times and laws. Look at verse 25. We've seen already he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. Characteristic number eight of this little horn. He'll think to change times and laws. Has the Pope of Rome ever thought to change times? Has he ever thought to change times? The Pope of Rome has set up kings, taken down kings, undone treaties, established treaties, and undone the oath of citizens to their king. He's changed times over and over through what is known as the Dark Ages, when the kings of Europe had to come and kiss his toe. When the kings of Europe had to come and receive their crown at his feet. Yes, the popes of Rome have crowned the kings of Europe by putting the crown on their heads with their feet. The kings of Europe have stood in the snow outside the Pope's headquarters for three days and begged for mercy. Change the time. Set up kings, take down kings, establish confederacies, undo, take citizens out from underneath their obligation of their vows and oaths to their government. He certainly has changed times. But you know, there's something interesting about that expression, change times and laws. Do you know who that statement is made about in the Bible? God Almighty. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, when Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar, there's one that changes the times and the seasons, and that's the Most High God. Here we see the Pope again trying to take the place of God and changing the laws. Has the Pope ever changed laws? The Pope can change laws whenever he wants to. He speaks with infallibility. When he makes a law, all laws that may contradict with that are overthrown. He can overthrow the laws of any government and free that citizen from those laws simply by his word. He's changed times and laws. What about the law of God's Word? What about the doctrine of Scripture? You may be thinking to yourself, yes, but the, the Pope of Rome is no threat to us today. The Pope of Rome is no threat today. They've compromised now, and they're a lot closer to the truth than they used to be. They're not known for the things that they used to be. Let me remind you of a few of their major doctrines and of how recent origin they are. For instance, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the fact that Mary was born without original sin and had no sin of her own because she did not have a sinful nature and could not sin. When the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and when Mary herself said, I magnify the Lord my Savior in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ had to save her as much as he did anyone else. Do you know when that law was made by the Pope of Rome? 1854. It wasn't until 1854 that the Pope of Rome said Mary had been conceived immaculately and she did not have a sin nature. How about the infallibility of the Pope? That when the Pope speaks, it's law. 1870. 1870. 
papal infallibility given by law in 1870. Yes, the Pope of Rome has changed times and laws like no other man has ever changed. Number nine, the little horn would have dominion over the saints for 1,260 years. We can see here in verse 25, the last half, and they, that is the saints of the Most High, shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. That's three and a half times. In the book of Revelation, as it relates to this prophecy of the little horn, it describes the beast and the great whore. And there, instead of three and a half times, the expression is used 42 months. Guess how many years that is? Three and a half years. And the expression is also used 1,260 days. Now, we know two things from Scripture, that either a prophecy like that is to be taken literally, that a day stands for a literal 24-hour day, or a day stands for a year. We've seen both in Daniel, remember? The 70 weeks, that only adds up to 490 days, doesn't it? 70 weeks. But in Daniel chapter 9, we know that there are weeks of years, each day standing for a year. Now, when you look at the Pope of Rome, since we've already seen it established by eight characteristics, what must the nine mean? Days or years? Obviously years. It couldn't be days. The Pope of Rome has been around a lot longer than that. And you don't wear saints out in 1260 days. You wear them out over a long period of time. Years. Has the Pope of Rome had dominion for a period of around 1260 years? When did the Pope of Rome receive dominion? Around 610 A.D. Now, I'm not going to pick dates on this one because I'm not sure of the beginning and ending points of the 1260 days. But I... Prophecy fits. You know what? The Bishop of Rome became the universal bishop and took to himself civil authority for the first time in the history of Rome. It is also known that in 1870, the Italian soldiers entered the city of Rome and the Vatican and made the Pope of Rome a captive in the city of Rome. He no longer had any civil authority. 1870. Now, you can subtract 610 from 1870 and come to any conclusion you want to, but I'll tell you that they are two dates well established in history of the papacy of Rome. Because notice, they will be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time under his power, authority, and dominion. That's number nine. And we see that, yes, although we may not be able to measure the dates exactly, although those two dates do measure it exactly to 1260 years, we see that the Pope of Rome did have dominion and wear out the saints of God for a period of around 1200 years. They themselves admit that. They claim to have persecuted the saints known as the Anabaptists for 1,200 years. Now, that's pretty good when it comes from their mouth, isn't it? Last of all, number 10. The little horn would lose dominion until Christ finally destroyed it. We see this in verse 26 of Daniel 7. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion, that is the dominion of the little horn, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and greatness, the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Here we see a process. Dominion taken away, a consuming and destruction being meted out against this power until 
the Lord Jesus Christ comes and gives the kingdom to the saints of the Most High. Have we seen that happen in the last couple hundred years? Yes, we have. Civil dominion and authority over the saints of the Most High have been taken away. The Pope of Rome today is not a threat to the physical lives of the saints of the Most High in most places in the world. Only under a rare exception do they still threaten the physical lives of the saints of the Most High. And the kingdom, from a civil standpoint, has been consumed and destroyed from a civil standpoint. Daniel here is seeing the political nature of the king of Rome, in addition to the spiritual nature. See, he sees the trading out of the saints of the Most High, the dominion given to him. He describes him as one horn growing out of the Roman Empire, which was a civil kingdom. Those are ten characteristics from Daniel chapter 7, and if you were to read the chapter, you'd see those ten listed back and forth several times that describe the little horn of Daniel, which is the Antichrist. It would arise in the Roman Empire, and we shall now see from the New Testament that this little horn meets the description that Paul and John set forth as the Antichrist. But those are ten characteristics that find their fulfillment in the Pope of Rome. And there has not been any kingdom or any king or any threat that has even come close to fitting that bill of goods like the Pope of Rome does. And you've got to have it growing out of the Roman Empire after it was broken into ten kingdoms. My friends, that occurred 1,600 years ago. Where are you going to look for fulfillment later? Rome was, destro Rome was destroyed as a single empire 1,600 years ago. You've got to go back to find that little horn. You cannot look to the future. You've got to go back and see what grew out of the ruins of the ten nations of the Roman Empire. Turn now to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we shall see John's description of the Antichrist, and he will actually use the word. John is the only man in Scripture to use the word Antichrist or Antichrist. He's the only one. And they're only found in 1 John and 2 John. Nowhere else in the Bible will you find the word Antichrist. You can just try to match up characteristics and see that the same personage or kingdom is under consideration. What is an Antichrist? An important thing to remember about an Antichrist is the use of that little four-letter prefix, anti. The word anti can mean in opposition to or opposing Christ, but anti also has another meaning, which means similar to, representing, or simulating Christ. Antichrist can mean one who opposes Christ. Antichrist can mean one who simulates, represents, or stands in the stead of Christ. Or Antichrist can mean both. And as we're going to see, that's how the Bible uses it. Now, 1 John chapter 2 gives us a description of this Antichrist from John's perspective. We've seen Daniel's. He described its origin out of a political kingdom of the Roman Empire and its development over time and the characteristics that would describe its government. Now we see John in the New Testament focus in a little bit more on the spiritual nature of this kingdom or king. 1 John 2, beginning at verse 18. 
Little children, it is the last time. We're not looking for a future time to be known as the last time. It is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Here John is telling those that he was writing to, it is the last time. The last time is not in the future when the Antichrist would come. The Antichrist will come in the last time, and now is the last time, and we already have Antichrists with us who typify and show us the characteristics of Antichrist singular that shall come. Now let me show you the characteristic of Antichrist. John tells us right here, if we can read in the next verse, what it is to be an Antichrist. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. John here describes Antichrist plural by describing individuals who had left apostolic doctrine, fellowship, and the church and had gone out. They went out from us, but they were not of us. That is right in conjunction with describing Antichrist, who typify and show that Antichrist shall come because Antichrists were already there according to John. What is an Antichrist? An Antichrist is an apostate Christian. The Antichrist will be an apostate Christian. No doubt about it. John is the only one that uses the term and he tells you right here what the Antichrist is. Now, there has been so much speculation going on that your mind is probably filled with imaginations that the Antichrist is going to be some atheistic, political, military, or economic ruler. He'll be none of those things. There's not a word in the Bible that tells you that the Antichrist is going to be some military figure. Antichrist is only used right here in John, and John tells you what the Antichrist is. He's a Christian, so-called, that went out from apostolic doctrine and departed from the true doctrine taught by John and the apostles. The whole book of 1 John is directed to that very point. Look at verse 7. You'll find this interesting in reading the book of 1 John. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. Notice John's warning against new doctrine. New commandments. But an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. John, in this whole epistle, is dealing with the beginning. The beginning. The word from the beginning. The commandments you heard from the beginning. Don't, don't look for a new commandment. Don't listen to a new commandment. Go back to what you heard from the beginning. Go back to the word from the beginning. Because John is emphasizing purity of doctrine in the epistle of 1 John. But it will be Antichrist who will depart from the purity of doctrine, who will leave the word of God taught from the beginning, who will make new commandments. And the epistle of 1 and 2 John is filled with that very idea. Look at chapter 4. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, beginning at verse 1, Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets, prophets, a spiritual teacher, 
is gone out into the world. Many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then verse 6 tells you how you can know whether he's false or true. We are of God, John writes of himself and the apostles. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You want to find the spirit of Antichrist? He'll be someone who departs from apostolic doctrine. And John said it was the last time. And we already have Antichrist with us telling us that Antichrist singular was on his way in the time that John wrote 1 John. And what would an Antichrist be? He would be a Christian departing from apostolic doctrine and would deceive people through false prophecy. The Antichrist is not a communist. He's not a Jew. He's not a Mason. He's none of those things primarily. The Antichrist will be a Christian under the guise of a Christian who was able to get himself into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and then depart from it by not maintaining the purity of the doctrine as it was taught from the beginning. That's what John has to say about the Antichrist. See, at the time these epistles were written, they had already crept into the churches. Jude wrote that certain men had crept in unawares. Ungodly men turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. They had already crept into the churches, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean they were atheists? No, they wouldn't have crept in. They would, they'd be, everybody would be aware of them that way, but they had crept in unawares. They didn't deny the Lord Jesus Christ openly by saying, we don't believe there's a Son of God. Nothing like that. That doesn't deceive any Christian. That wouldn't deceive any saint of God. That's no deception at all. These are men who claim to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to worship the Most High God, but in doctrine and in works, they deny Him, which is what the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. They profess that they know God but in works, they deny him. That's the Antichrist that John was looking for, which was typified by the Antichrist that were already in the church. Individuals who left and went out from us. They didn't maintain the purity of New Testament doctrine as John emphasizes here in his epistle. Now that's what John has to say about the Antichrist. That the Antichrist will be a Christian who departs from true doctrine and does not follow the apostles in what they taught. Let's go to the third passage of Scripture in your New Testaments that deals with this Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In First and Second Thessalonians, we have Paul dealing extensively with the second coming of Jesus Christ. He dealt with it extensively in chapters 4 and 5 of the first epistle. And then in the first chapter of this epistle, 2 Thessalonians, he deals with it again. Now in verse 2, I mean in chapter 2, excuse me, he takes up with dealing with a problem that the Thessalonians had about this coming of Jesus Christ. They were about to happen. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can see what he's talking about, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. 
He's warning them here, don't be deceived by any false letter or word that comes from us. It appears from verse 2 very definitely that... The coming of Christ... He said, ignore such a word and don't be shaken or deceived by such a word. And he goes on to tell them how they could know that the coming of Jesus Christ was not near at hand. In verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That is the Antichrist, as you'll see as we continue reading. But let's go back to verse 3 and take this phrase by phrase for a few of these verses here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. First of all, the beginning of verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. That's a warning, friends. It's not there for the Holy Spirit of God to waste words. It's a warning. There are going to be all kinds of means used to deceive you into what Paul's warning against. Paul is saying Jesus Christ will not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed. 95% of the world today, holding to that futuristic school of interpretation, teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ will come, then the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, will be revealed. Paul teaches, let no man deceive you by any means. Let's get one thing straight. The falling away and the coming of Antichrist will precede the coming of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ will destroy him with his coming, verses 8 and 9. Let no man deceive you by any means. This is an important point. That falling away in the man of sin would be revealed first. That was the nearest item of prophecy yet to be fulfilled for a Gentile church like the Thessalonians before the coming of Christ could occur. For that day shall not come. What day? The day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of the coming of Christ. Under consideration right there in verses 1 and 2. That day shall not come. And plainly contradicts what's taught today by 95% of those who claim to be Christians and teach the Word of God. That day shall not come except there come a falling away first. A falling away must occur first and the man of sin would be revealed in this falling away. Notice, except there come a falling away first, and in conjunction with that falling away, that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. When would the son of man be revealed? And the son of perdition revealed? When there was a falling away. Well, now, what is a falling away? Well, the Bible will answer that for us very clearly, if you'll read the Bible. A falling away is described in... Luke chapter 8 and verse 13, when we have the, where we have the parable of the sower. Let me read to you that verse, describing the seed that fell on stony ground. Jesus Christ said, They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. There's a falling away defined for you in the Bible. You don't need to go to the Greek to have it defined. Although the Greek word there is apostasia, which is the word we get our apostasy from. A falling away is apostasy, as Luke 8, 13 tells us. When you fall away from something, you fall away from the truth. You backslide. When you fall away from something, you are back 
sliding. You are going into apostasy. You are departing from the truth. Like when Paul wrote the Galatians and said, ye are fallen from grace. What did that mean? They had departed from the proper understanding of grace. That was a falling away. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, Jesus says of another church, the church at Ephesus, He said of them, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. The first works. Here's a church that had been in the first works, what John had described in 1 John, that which they had heard from the beginning. But they had fallen away from that. And Jesus Christ describes that as a falling away. And they were to repent to do again the first works. The falling away here in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 is so obvious, a blind man could see it. The only man that can't see it is the man who won't see it. The falling away is an apostasy from the truth. It's departing from the true doctrine just as we had described for us in 1 John 2. They went out from us to show that they weren't truly of us. They had fallen from apostolic doctrine. Paul warned in other places of this apostasy or of this departure or of this falling away that must occur. And let's look at one just as an example. If you'll turn the, just a couple pages to 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll read of a departure from the faith, a falling away from the faith, and apostasy that Paul described. 1 Timothy 4. You can see that the falling away is falling from the true understanding of the gospel of Christ. Look at 1 Timothy 4. Here's an example of this falling away. And you tell me when I finish reading it who this fits. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. There's the falling away. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies and hypocrisy and having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. If you believe and know the truth, you can eat all meat, and you can get married without any worry about it. If you've departed from the truth, departed from the faith, taken heed to seducing spirits, the spirits John was warning about in 1 John 2 when he said the spirit of Antichrist is here. What kind of doctrines would this departure teach? Forbidding to marry and abstaining from meats. Now, I don't need to spend a great deal of time telling you who that fits. There's only one church in the world today that that fits cleanly on both counts. And that's the Roman Catholic Church. They have forbid eating meats during Lent. Remember, 40 days, they still do it today to a certain extent in those Orthodox Catholics, have to eat fish for 40 days during Lent and forbid their priesthood to marry. Right in conjunction. There'd be a falling away, Paul said. And he described certain characteristics of this falling away. Let me ask you a question. When was there a falling away that Paul would focus on as the falling away? When did men depart from the truth of the gospel wholesale? It's not something to look forward to. There couldn't be a falling away in the future described like this because that would mean that we would have had to have maintained the purity of the original doctrine for the last 1900 years for the falling away to be future. And you know better than that. The apostles went out in the book of Acts 
preach the gospel everywhere, turn the world upside down, establish churches. The Apostle Paul went and confirmed the disciples in those churches. But by the time we get to the book of the Revelation, they are already falling into error, just as Paul told Timothy they would, and just as Jude wrote, they were already in the churches he knew about. He said they had already crept in unawares. My friends, the falling away, as anyone who has studied history knows, took place in the first couple centuries following the work of the apostles as they fell away wholesale into false doctrine, primarily that instigated through Rome. Pagan Rome, first of all, through Constantine, and then Papal Rome following that. The falling away already took place 18, 19, 100 years ago as men departed from the faith and imbibed the doctrines that we've already looked at. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This individual that's coming is called the man of sin, the son of perdition. Look at verse 4. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, do you see this beginning to fit in with what Daniel already described? That the little horn in Daniel would speak blasphemous things against the Most High? Here we have it. The man of sin. What man of sin? He said that man of sin. What man of sin? Is Paul just making one up without telling us what one he's talking about? Or is he talking about the very one that Daniel had already told about 500 years previously that would speak great things against the Most High? A great error that people make in trying to force this interpretation of 2 Thessalonians 2 into an individual yet to come is the statement, the man of, that man of sin, the son of perdition. They see, notice, it's got to be one individual. It can't be the papacy. I know the papacy fulfills everything else the Bible has to say, but it can't be the papacy because it says the man of sin. That describes an individual man. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's the strongest argument they've got at 2 Thessalonians 2. It's as weak as a candle that's about to be blown out. The man of sin, referring to an individual. How about the man of God in 2 Timothy 3.17? That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Is that a single preacher? Or is that every preacher in a line describing an office? How about the high priest over in Hebrews chapter 9? When, when Paul wrote and said the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once every year. Did only one high priest go in? Or was it the office that went in in a number of high priests that held that office? Paul said, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. What woman? All women. He's using the expression, the woman, the high priest, the man of God, collectively describing high priests, ministers of the gospel, and women. Just like we have here, Paul is using that man of sin, the son of perdition, describing what Daniel described as the little horn, a king and kingdom that would rule for a long period of time. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, we read in verse 4. Is there a man today who, first of all, sits in the temple of God? Notice, this man of sin will be revealed and he'll sit in the temple of God. Where is the temple of God according to the Apostle Paul? It's the church. Absolutely. Paul never used the word temple one time describing to that thing in Jerusalem. That wasn't a temple of God. Christ had said, your house is left unto you desolate. Your house. 
not my house. If you'll go earlier in the ministry of Christ, you'll find him referring to that as my house, my father's house. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Then he said, it's your house. A temple in Jerusalem would be no temple of God. God tells you what it would be over in Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9. It would be the synagogue of Satan. The temple of God, according to the Apostle Paul, is the church of the living God. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. 1 Corinthians 3. The temple of God is the church of God. This man of sin will be revealed in conjunction with a falling away in the temple of God. Where he will claim to be as God, showing himself that he is God, opposing and exalting himself above all that is called God or worship. Has there been a man claiming to sit in the church of Almighty God, exalting himself as God, showing himself to be as God, and yet opposing all that is called God or worshipped? One man fits the bill perfectly, which ties in with Daniel perfectly, which ties in with 1 John chapter 2. The falling away was the great apostasy of those falling away from what had been taught from the beginning by the apostles as they imbibed the doctrine of Romanism that resulted in the Bishop of Rome being made Universal Bishop, Holy Father, in the Church of God, claiming that there is no salvation outside the Church, the Roman Holy Catholic Church of God, and that there is no salvation to any who will not submit to the Holy Father. As God, in the temple of God, showing Himself that He is God. Notice the word, sitteth in the temple of God. Did you know that it's when the Pope sits on the bishop's seat and he speaks ex cathedra that his words are to be taken as the infallible word of God himself sitting in the temple of God? What temple? The so-called church, which was once the church of God, the church at Rome. We have a whole epistle written to it that degenerated in the first couple centuries into the church at Rome. We can read further in this passage that this man of sin will come into power through the working of Satan. Verse 9, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Does the Roman Catholic Church claim today and have they claimed to have power and to perform signs and wonders? There are too many to mention. See, it's been overshadowed today with the charismatic movement. You go back in time, they'll tell you of springs you can go to, of idols you can pray to, of idols in certain churches that have turned their heads, moved their arms, walked, and done all kinds of things, showing signs and powers and lying wonders. Does the Roman Catholic clergy claim to have power when they say hocus-pocus over a piece of bread? They create Almighty God anew when they do that. They claim to create in those words hocus-pocus, and that's where those words came from. They claim to create in those words the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that claiming to have some power after the working of Satan? Lying wonders? Is that a wonder? Is it a lie? What a lie. How many millions of people have let that little wafer slip down their throats, realizing every sense in my body is telling me it's a wafer, but my mind must overrule my senses and believe the lie of that church that it's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Why, they've claimed to heal and do all kinds of things with their relics that they love to keep 
I've told you before, according to the most recent count, there are 13 forefingers of John the Baptist maintained in 13 different Roman Catholic churches. You know how they all love keeping their relics? Why, 13 of them claim to have the forefinger of John the Baptist that said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, that's amazing. You've heard of the, uh, what is it, the Shroud of Turin that's made so popular today and, and the powers that are associated with that cloth? Huh. The Bible here is describing it to a T, the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy that's at the head of that church, the man of sin and son of perdition himself. Now, we come down to verses 5 through 7, and we have an interesting statement made. And here's where we can cut through a great deal of fog made today when they try to put the Antichrist out into the future. Verses 5 through 7. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Paul's writing to the Thessalonians and he's telling them, when I was with you, I told you all about this. I described the man of sin and I described what we're now going to cover in the next three verses. But he doesn't describe it here. Watch what he, Paul does. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. Now the he and the what are not the same thing. What withholdeth is some force that is keeping the he, the man of sin, from being revealed. Paul is saying Jesus Christ will not come until the man of sin is revealed. The man of sin is not going to be revealed until what withholdeth is taken out of the way, as we'll see in verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. That's the mystery of iniquity. The little horn, the Antichrist, is already at work, just like John said he was already at work. There are already Antichrists, but the fulfillment of that in one head was yet to come. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let. Now that word let means hinder or restrain. It, that's what it meant, and that's what it was assumed to mean in 1611. Now we don't use the word let that way today but it means hinder or restrain. Only he who now hindereth or restrains will hinder or restrain until he be taken out of the way. It's the same power, force, individual described up in verse 5 that's withholding. Whatever is withholding is also restraining and hindering the revealing of this man of sin, this son of perdition. This is beautiful if you'll read your Bibles. Scripture must always interpret Scripture, not someone's fanciful ideas of some superman to come at the end of this world. Daniel told us plainly when the little horn would arise, which is the Antichrist. It is the man of sin, the son of perdition, because they have the same characteristics. Daniel told us when the little horn would arise. What time would the little horn arise? When the Roman Empire fell into ten kingdoms and was, when the Roman Empire fell into ten kingdoms and then opportunity was given to the Bishop of Rome to assume the authority over that broken kingdom. That little horn would grow out of the ten and assume authority over the broken Roman Empire. Daniel told us that. Now read Paul carefully. Given that Daniel has already told us unquestionably when the Pope would arise when the little horn would arise. He would arise when the Roman Empire was taken out of the way as far as having its head in Rome. Pagan Rome and Papal Rome are not the same thing. 
One was a civil power. The other was a spiritual power. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Paul said, when I was with you, and I could speak to you in person, I told you all this. Verse 7. Verse 6, excuse me. And now ye know what withholdeth. The Thessalonians knew what withholdeth. Paul knew what withholdeth. There was no speculation about what withholdeth. That's a neuter pronoun, by the way. Neither male nor female. Paul here is telling them, you know, and I know, and when I was with you, I told you all about it. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he, now it refers to it as a masculine pronoun, he who now letteth will let, or he who hinders will hinder, until he be taken out of the way. If we're going to let Daniel interpret 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's very, very simple. The civil authority of the Roman Caesars had to be taken out of the way so that the papal authority of the Bishop of Rome could be revealed. Very simple. The Roman Empire, the Roman government, in verse 5, is referred to under a neuter pronoun. What? The authority of the Roman Empire had to be taken out of the way. Let me tell you, when there was a Caesar on the throne, no bishop tried to claim universal bishophood. Caesars were kind of jealous over their power and their position. No churchman tried to be numero uno and make any Caesar come and kiss his feet. Forget it. The Caesars wouldn't allow that. And that's the he of verse 6. Only he who now hindereth. Who's hindering? It's referred to as plural. The Caesars of Rome. Do you know what this passage is, what, what men try to teach with this passage today? That the Holy Spirit is the hinderer and he'll be taken out of the way. Where can you find in the Bible that the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the way? Because they're trying to stick that Antichrist way out in the future. The hindering power was the Roman Empire and the Caesars who were seated on the seat of authority in Rome. And until he was gone, no bishop or pope could assume that seat and take to him his authority. You say, well, it sounds good and it fits with Scripture. Why didn't Paul tell us that? Very obvious if you think for a minute. For Paul to say that the Roman Empire had to be taken out of the way and destroyed for the man of sin to come and Jesus Christ to come, he would have brought down the wrath of the Caesars on him because Rome was considered the eternal city and eternal kingdom. This church, this is how the Bible will defend you. In Acts chapter 17, we read that Paul had already had a run-in with this very problem at Thessalonica. In Acts chapter 17, let me read you a couple verses. In Acts 17, the Jews came around. The Jews which believed not, this is in Thessalonica with Paul's ministry, moved with envy, Acts 17.5, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. These are the Christians at Thessalonica. What they accuse them of? And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. See, the Jews came into Thessalonica, accused Paul and the church at Thessalonica of teaching things contrary to Caesar and set the whole city on an uproar. Well, Paul, when he wrote them an epistle, which would put something in writing, remember, Paul wasn't taped when he preached in Thessalonica. 
He spoke verbally, and it was up to their memories to remember what he had taught them. He didn't put anything in writing using the Roman Empire by name, although the Thessalonians knew, according to this chapter, and he knew, because to do so would have been a total lack of discretion and would have brought down the wrath of the Roman Empire on them as teaching things contrary to Caesar. But the Roman Empire wasn't going to be eternal as the Caesars thought that it would be. Isn't that beautiful? And the Word of God shows you that that was the problem he had at Thessalonica. And that fits with Daniel. And that fits with John. All of these prophecies of this man of sin, Antichrist, little horn, all fit together in the Roman papacy. Now I want to conclude this morning by giving you a little bit of ammunition to support what I've taught you. 95% of the professing Christian world today has not heard what you just heard. They don't know what 2 Thessalonians 2 is talking about. They speculate that it's some Superman way out in the future and that it's the Holy Spirit that's going to be taken out of the way. How do you take the Holy Spirit out of the way? It doesn't fit with Daniel. It doesn't fit with John. And it won't fit with Revelation. That's what 95% of the world teaches. And if they heard what I've taught you this morning, they'd claim that we've come up with some new novel doctrine. I want to tell you right now two things. That the Antichrist has been universally believed, when I say universally in this context, I mean generally, believed to be the papacy of Rome by those who gave their lives for that conviction. Second, I want to show you that the power and the force in verses 5 through 7 of this passage being referred to as the Roman Empire is the universal position taken by those until 200 years ago. And then I'm going to tell you why they take a futuristic interpretation today. Let me read you just a few little statements. And I do not read these statements to establish doctrine or to confirm doctrine. I read these statements only to show you the saints of the Most High God, that we are not maintaining the novel position. We are maintaining the one that men gave their lives for. First of all, on who the Antichrist was. Listen to the Waldensians in 1120. The Waldensians said, in a treatise on Antichrist, they wrote a book called The Treatise of Antichrist, which we have to this day. According to the Apostle, we may truly say, this is that man of sin complete that lifts up himself against all that is called God or worshipped, and that setteth himself in opposition against all truth, sitting down in the temple of God, that is, in his church, the church of God, and showing forth himself as if he were God, being come with all manner of deceivableness for those that perish. And since he is truly come, he must no longer be looked for, for he has grown old already by God's permission. The Waldensians, already claiming that the Pope of Rome was the man of sin, son of perdition, the Antichrist, sitting in the temple of God. He's been there by God's permission for a long time. We don't need to look to the future. How about a Catholic in 1240 A.D.? Though that Waldensian statement was from 1120. A Catholic in 1240. Ten kings exist at the same time who have divided the circle of the earth, formerly the Roman Empire, and a little horn has sprung up under these which has eyes and a mouth speaking great things. With an unendurable lordship, he plagues the people of Christ and the saints of God. He mingles divine and human things. He sets in motion the abominable and the detestable things. 
What is more clear than this prophecy? You know, he's referring to Daniel 7. What is more clear than this prophecy? All the signs and wonders which that heavenly teacher of ours pointed out to us have been fulfilled long ago. A Catholic, 1240. I could read many more from Luther, Calvin, Huss, Wycliffe. They're universal on the papacy being the man of sin, the little horn, the Antichrist, and the beast, as we'll see when we get to Revelation. The book you hold in your hands, known as the King James Version, has this to say in its preface. Speaking of the King James, the, the translators wrote, The zeal of your majesty toward the house of God, manifesting itself abroad in the farthest parts of Christendom, by writing in defense of the truth, which hath given such a blow unto that man of sin as will not be healed. The translators of the Bible you hold in your hands knew who the man of sin was. It was the Pope of Rome. And the writing of the King James Version and the other writings that King James had authorized had dealt that man of sin a blow as will not be healed. How about the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, 1742? The confession of faith upon which most of the Baptist churches in this country before 1900 were founded on. A confession of faith where men would put in writing who they considered the Antichrist to be. In dealing with the church, the Baptist confession of faith reads, Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof of the true church, but is, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 2-9, that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That same statement can be found in the Presbyterian Creed, known as the Westminster. The same statement can be found in the Savoy Declaration of the Congregationalist Churches. It can be found in other Baptist confessions. They put it in writing, who they considered the man of sin to be. It was obvious. Listen, their relatives had given their lives against that king, who was wearing out the saints of the Most High. Leroy Froome, a noted historian who has written a four-volume set describing prophetic interpretation from the days of the apostles to the current date, has this to say. After spending three volumes, which I have skimmed, if not read, about the interpretation of Antichrist, he has this to say. The futurist view of an individual Jewish Antichrist was unknown among the Protestants of North America prior to the 19th century. That's the 1800s. Unknown of a future Antichrist. Let me read a couple to you about the withholding force in 2 Thessalonians 2. The Thessalonians knew it. Paul knew it. This wasn't something that had to be interpreted. They knew it already because he had told them in person. Well, you'd think that that would have been communicated, don't you? Well, it was. Tertullian a man who wrote in 200 A.D. said, What is the restraining power? What but the Roman state, the breaking up of which, by being scattered into ten kingdoms, shall introduce Antichrist. 200 A.D. Jerome, 400 A.D., a Roman. He, speaking of Paul, shows that that which restrains is the Roman Empire. For unless it shall have been destroyed and taken out of the midst, according to the prophet Daniel, Antichrist will not come before that. Listen to what he says. Let us therefore say what all ecclesiastical writers have delivered to us, that when the Roman Empire is destroyed, ten kings will divide the Roman world among themselves 
and then will be revealed the man of sin. In 400, Jerome, a Roman, said, all ecclesiastical writers acknowledged that it was the Roman Empire that was the withholding force in Second Thessalonians 2, and that once it was taken of the way, the Antichrist would be revealed. There wasn't the smell of a future Antichrist until 1800 among those known as Protestants. A man named Barnes, who has a commentary called Barnes Notes in the New Testament, which can be found in the libraries of most of those who teach today, says this, To anyone acquainted with the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, nothing can be more manifest than the correspondence of the facts in history respecting the rise of the papacy and the statement of the Apostle Paul here. He said, In all history there cannot probably be found a series of events corresponding more accurately with a prophetic statement than this. And there is every evidence, therefore, that these are the events to which the spirit of inspiration referred. Let's go to the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1961. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that the power which was universally believed by the Christians to be that which was retarding the revelation of the Antichrist was the Roman Empire. Isn't that amazing? Truth has died out in America. This is the position of those who gave their lives and who were worn out by the papacy of Rome. Universally believed. Today, universally unknown. All you have to do is read the Word of God. Daniel tells you what was restraining and when the man of sin would be revealed. Well, Pastor... Why is it then that no one knows what you're teaching today, hardly, except a very few, and that 95% of the world is teaching a future Antichrist? The answer is very, very simple. By 1500, the Roman Catholic Church and its dominion was being shaken to its foundations. Martin Luther had nailed his theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg in 1517. They were developing Bibles in German, French, the Waldensians had come forth with their own Bible in their own dialect. Tyndale, Wycliffe had developed Bibles. And all of these men, without an exception, taught that the Church of Rome was the Antichrist, the man of sin. Do you know what the Reformation was based on? What the stand of the Waldensians was based on? Two things. The Reformation and those individuals that gave their lives during the Dark Ages was based on two things. That Jesus Christ is the only Savior from sin and not the works of Romanism. And second, that Rome herself was the great whore, the Antichrist, and the little horn. Why else do you think they were so willing to give their lives? Because they saw in her the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy that she was the little horn, she was the man of sin. And because they knew that, they willingly gave their lives at her stakes. That's what the Reformation was based on. Well, the Catholics saw that everywhere they turned. Dissertations, tracts, books were being written accusing her of being the Antichrist, the great whore, the little horn. Well, they weren't going to let that stop them. They had to put an end to this Reformation. So as they wrote a translation of the Bible in English in 1582, known as the reims Douay Bible, to counteract the King James, the Tyndale, and the Wycliffe Bibles, remember, Rome had no use for a Bible. Rome had burned Bibles for 1,200 years. Here they were putting one into English. Why? To try to keep those that were leaving her church to go to the Reformation. She came with a Bible, and she came up with a scheme of interpretation 
known as the Futuristic School of Interpretation, written by a Jesuit named Francisco Rivera in the 1500s, a Jesuit who wrote a 500-page commentary on the book of Revelation, sticking everything out in the future. And that is the first time that that had been done, and it was done by the Roman Catholic Jesuits in an effort to counteract all of the testimony that was being raised against them that they, they fulfilled the Antichrist and the great horror of Scripture. And it was that book, along with others that were written by the Catholics, that were imbibed by Edward Irving in 1830 and John Darby and C.I. Schofield, who came from them, who taught the futuristic school of interpretation that before 1830 was unknown among Protestants. As anyone who wants to review the facts can find out, the idea of the Antichrist being on the future was unknown. For 1,200 years, men had given their lives because they knew who the Antichrist was, and they stood against him for the purity of the doctrine as it had been delivered to them at the beginning. What does this have to mean? What does this mean for us? It means, it means a reminder for all of us to give diligence to studying our Bible to save ourselves from the same error that took the Church of Rome, and that is not knowing their Bibles well enough and being deceived by false doctrine. As we read there in 1 John 4, 6, we know the spirit of truth if a man speaks according to what the apostles spoke. But you've got to know what the apostles said if you're going to check men out by what the Word of God teaches. It, it gives us a reminder of the efforts we ought to make to make sure that in our family lives and in our personal lives and in our church life, we don't let Rome sneak in. And Rome will try to do that. Since she has lost her civil dominion over men, she now tries to claim them even more by deception. And much of the church today is taken 